0: First of all, this sermon will be the third part of an introduction to a sermon series through the book of Exodus. So I'm taking my time to set the stage for our study through the book of Exodus. So these sermons are a bit unusual. We're not moving verse by verse through a text of Scripture necessarily, but rather I'm trying to just look at the Scriptures from a big-picture perspective in order to set the stage. So I wanted to acknowledge that ahead of time. These are a little bit unusual sermons for me. Also, when I prayed... Uh, after the silent confession of sins, did I say that we are to love our neighbor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes, you caught me. Sometimes I will say some things and then like if, a, a, a second or two later think, did I just say that? Thank you for being gracious with your pastor when he makes those errors. Um, that text is very familiar. It should have been uh, coming off my tongue just right and it did not. So so please forgive me. And then also I wanted to exhort you, brothers and sisters, to come to the second service um, at... Twelve 15. I'm going to continue to encourage you to do that. I would love to see the same group in the second service that's here in the morning service. Uh, we go through the Word of God, um, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in, in, on, on Sunday morning. In the Lord's Day afternoon, we have the uh, ability to uh, hear catechetical preaching, preaching through the Baptist Catechism, which I think is very needed in our day. Uh, We sing together a little bit, and then we have corporate prayer. It's a brief service. It's only 45 minutes long or so. It's a very brief service, but we do some very important things uh, there in the second service. And so I'm going to continue to hound you about that, uh, to say make the effort come after we have that brief intermission between the services. Today we have a fellowship meal which we'll enjoy together, but we'll come back in and we'll sing, hear catechetical preaching, preaching through the doctrines of the Christian faith and have corporate prayer. So, so do please come. With all of that out of the way, um, let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. We will read Matthew 2 and Hosea 11, which seems like a strange thing to do as an introduction to the book of Exodus, but I hope it will all come together for you eventually. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let us go now to Hosea chapter 11. And we will here read the text that was cited by Matthew in the passage that we have just read. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me." The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not rise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God. And is faithful to the Holy One. So far, the reading of God's most holy word, may He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The thing that I have attempted to do in these three introductory sermons is to properly situate the Exodus event in the overall story of redemption that is told in the pages of Holy Scripture. The story of the Exodus is a marvelous story. I think you would agree with me about that. But it is bound to be misunderstood if we only pay attention to a part of it or if we ignore what happened beforehand and afterward. Yes, we may tell the story of baby Moses in a basket, of God speaking to Moses in the burning bush and there revealing his name to him, of the ten plagues and of the parting of the Red Sea. And yes, that story of deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. It's a wonderful story. It must be told over and over again. But it is one thing to tell the story. It's another thing altogether to understand its meaning and its significance. Were the Hebrews rescued by God from the iron furnace of Egypt? We say, yes, they really were. But why? For what purpose? To what end? And to understand the meaning of the Exodus event, we must consider the whole story, not just our favorite parts of it, and we must consider the whole story in the context of the rest of Holy Scripture, Old Testament and New. And so this is why we have asked the question, what happened in the first introductory sermon? We also asked what happened before in the second introductory sermon, and now today we are asking the question, what happened afterward? What proceeded from the Exodus event. So what happened at the time of the Exodus? By way of review and very briefly, the Hebrew people were rescued from Egyptian bondage. God gave them his law on the mountain and entered into a covenant with them and he tabernacled in the midst of them so that the people might enjoy his presence, worship and serve him. And that is the story in brief that is told in the book of Exodus. What happened before? We must not forget the garden Man's fall into sin and its consequences, the first promise of the gospel announced by God in Adam's presence, and especially the precious and very great promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A great multitude would descend from Abraham. Nations would come from him. Kings would arise in his line. His people would it would experience bondage, but they would be redeemed and brought into their own land. In due time, one would descend from Abraham who would bring God's blessing to all the nations of the earth, and not just to the nation of Israel. And so I am saying that we cannot forget this back story, brothers and sisters. We cannot forget the story that is told in the book of Genesis. If we wish to understand Exodus, we must first understand Genesis. For Exodus is simply a continuation of the story that is told there. Genesis is prologue. Exodus is chapter 1 of the story that is told in the Old Testament, which has its focus set on the nation of Israel. And today, we will look in the opposite direction. We will not be considering what preceded the Exodus event, but what proceeded from it. The task is a bit more challenging, as you can imagine. If you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that there's a lot more material after the book of Exodus than what is found in Exodus itself and before it. And so I will have to be very selective. But this exercise, I think, will be very illuminating, for it will reveal that the Old Testament Scriptures themselves and, of course, the New Testament Scriptures speak of a greater Exodus that took place after the first one. The Old Testament Scriptures themselves point forward and and say, in essence, this was not it. Uh, Something greater is going to happen in the future. One greater than Moses will come. A new and greater covenant will be brought to God's people. So so look forward with expectation, people of God. The Old Testament Scriptures themselves say that. And of course, the New Testament Scriptures speak of the fulfillment of those promises previously made. The New Testament Scriptures speak tell the story of, of the coming Messiah, the one greater than Moses. They tell the story of the inauguration of this new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. They tell the story of the benefits that come to us because of what Christ has accomplished on, on our behalf. And so we are looking in the opposite direction from the book of Exodus. We're looking forward from that time and we're asking the question, what happened afterward? I've taken three sermons to make This point, because this point is so very crucial to a proper interpretation of the Exodus event in particular, and the story of redemption in general, and yet so many fail to see it. The point that I am so concerned to make can be summed up in this way. Please listen carefully to this. The Exodus was a real historical event. It was a very significant part of God's program of redemption, But do not misunderstand this. It was not the main event. It was a type of a greater act of redemption that would be accomplished later. It was like a preview, therefore. It was like a mock trial, an exercise, if you will. Or to say it as I did in the previous sermon, in the Exodus, a battle was won, but not the war. Christ Jesus won the war in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. It is He who has delivered us, not from the Egyptians and not from earthly bondage, but it is He, Christ, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. I didn't state that quite properly. God has done this for us. God has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins, that is Colossians 1:13 through14. and so at the Exodus, an earthly and temporary deliverance was accomplished, but through Christ we have spiritual deliverance and the promise of life eternal. I hope you can see why it's so important to keep these two things clear in our minds as we take months to go through the book of Exodus, uh, we, will, we will learn a lot from uh, that book. We will learn about what happened and we will also seek to make application for ourselves uh, from this book. But we must uh, we must keep this abundantly clear in our minds. What Christ has accomplished is far greater. We are not under this covenant that they were under. We're under a new and better covenant and so we must keep these things distinct and, and clear lest we fall into terrible error. Why am I so concerned to make this point? Well positively It is so that our appreciation of the deliverance that is ours in Christ Jesus will grow during our study of the book of Exodus and not diminish. If we fail to see the Exodus as an earthly picture of the spiritual and eternal redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, then we will lose sight of the gospel during our study. But if we see the Exodus as we should, as a type of something greater that happened later, Then we will appreciate both what God did for the Hebrews to deliver them from Egyptian bondage and especially what God has done for His elect in every age to deliver them from the power of sin, Satan, and the fear of death. Negatively, I'm concerned to make this point, this introductory point, to help protect the church today from error. And three common errors come to mind. One the error of dispensationalism tends to view God's dealings with the Hebrew people as ultimate in some way. These may read the Exodus story and forget that God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage in order to do something through them, namely to bring the Messiah into the world so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. We must not forget this that God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage in order to do something through them, to bring salvation to the nations. That is why Christ came, saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, you see. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not of one particular people, but of the world. He is the Savior of the world, brothers and sisters, and we cannot lose sight of this. Old Covenant Israel must be viewed not as an end, But the means, not as the goal of redemption, but God's tool, not as the terminus, but as the conduit of God's salvation to all the nations of the earth. And viewing the Exodus event as typological is key to avoiding the dispensational error. We need to avoid it. Two, the error of liberation theology tends to view the earthly, social, and political deliverance of Israel from Egyptian oppression as ultimate. As we read this story um, found in the book of Exodus, we will see that indeed the weak, marginalized, and oppressed Hebrews were delivered by God from the powerful, harsh, and oppressive Egyptians. And so many in our day assume that this is God's leading concern to liberate the oppressed in an earthly way. And of course, God is concerned for the oppressed. He is concerned with matters of justice. This cannot be denied. But we must remember that God was doing something far greater when He set the Hebrew slaves free. Remembering what happened before and seeing what happened after the Exodus will help us from falling into this error which reduces God's program of redemption down to mere earthly social and political deliverance. Are, Are you... Are you following me? There are many professing Christians who, who live in our time who, when they think of salvation and when they talk of redemption in Christ Jesus, think in merely earthly terms, you know. Uh, the gospel is God has come to set the oppressed free, but they're thinking of the earthly oppressed. We know that the gospel is so much more than this. It might produce this, yes, in cultures. It might help to alleviate the suffering of the oppressed. Indeed, that is true. But God has provided a Savior not to bring us earthly and temporary salvation. No, He has provided a Savior who will bring us salvation to to all eternity, freedom from sin, Satan, and the fear of, of, of death. So we must pay attention to what happened before. What were the promises made? What was the problem that was being solved? The Genesis story sets the stage for us. What happened afterwards? We see that God brought a Savior from Israel who came not to just deliver us from Egyptian oppression or Roman oppression, but from the domain of darkness and, and the power of Satan himself. And in fact, paying attention to the whole story of Exodus will keep us from this error. For God did not merely set Israel free and then say, go on your way and live as you wish. No, He set them apart as His holy people. He gave them His law. He entered into covenant with them. And He dwelt in the midst of them, you see. So obviously His aim, even in the Exodus, even in itself, was to do something far greater than to, to just free them from, from earthly, temporary, Oppression and bondage, therefore. Three, the error of theonomy tends to view the law that God gave to Old Covenant Israel as binding upon all governments and not Old Covenant Israel only. And of course, the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, is binding upon all individuals. It is by this law, the moral law, that all men will be judged on the last day, if not in Christ. But God also gave Israel civic laws, or civil laws. And theonomists believe, to one degree or another, there are different types, that those civil laws are to be taken up and enforced by all governments, even to this present day. And theonomy, brothers and sisters, is a serious error. And it is growing in popularity amongst the Reformed today. You need to know this. Remembering that God was doing something very special and unique and and through Old Covenant Israel will help to guard us against the theonomic error. God rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage and entered into a special covenant with them. They were set apart from all the nations as a holy people and many of the civil laws and all of the ceremonial laws that were imposed upon them by God were unique to them. Common nations such as our own May learn from these laws as they seek to build just societies. But there were some laws given to Israel that ought not to be enforced by common governments of the past, present, or future. For example, and because this is only introductory and not thorough, I will mention two things. False prophets and idolaters were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. Think of that for a moment. False prophets and idolaters were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. That is a, a civic, those are civic laws, civil laws, but not so in the United States of America. I'll teach you more about this on another ta- at another time, or you can review that study that we did not long ago on, on politics after Christendom. I think there's some very helpful material there. But for now, Remember that what God was doing in and through Old Covenant Israel was unique and for a time. The dispensationalist and the theonomist, they tend to forget this fact, both in their own ways. What God was doing in and through Old Covenant Israel was unique and it was for a time until the Christ was brought into the world through them. So then, Three sermons have been devoted to setting the stage for our study through Exodus. And by considering what happened in the Exodus event, what happened before and what happened afterwards, we will enter into the Exodus story, I hope, well prepared, knowing that God's dealings with Israel were very significant in the accomplishment of our redemption from sin, Satan, and death. But that redemption was accomplished by Christ. It was not accomplished in the days of Moses. So what happened after the Exodus? It's a very big question. The rest of the scriptures from Exodus through Revelation tell uh, the story, but I think I can summarize it for you in five parts. One, the promises made to Abraham regarding many descendants, the land of Canaan and kings, were all fulfilled. Two, because Israel broke the terms of the covenant that God made with them through Moses, they were eventually expelled. From the land. 3. It was during the Babylonian captivity that expectations of a future and greater exodus grew. 4. In the fullness of time, the Messiah emerged from Israel and accomplished our redemption. God has, once again, to quote Colossians 1.13, "...delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into His kingdom." And in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." 5. From the resurrection of Christ from the dead on to this present day, the people of God await the consummation of all things. That is to say, not a return to Canaan, not a return to temple worship as it was under the old covenant, but the consummation of all things, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of glory which is everlasting. And so please allow me to demonstrate each of these points from Scripture before suggesting some application. First of all, we must see that the promises made to Abraham regarding many descendants, the land of Canaan and kings, were all fulfilled after the time of the Exodus. I hope you are remembering those promises that were made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. He was promised many things, some of them being many descendants, the land of Canaan, And that kings would eventually come from Him. The people, remember, were delivered from Egyptian bondage through the Red Sea. They received God's law at Sinai. They entered into covenant with God, saying, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That is Exodus 24.3. God provided for His people, freshly redeemed from Egypt in the wilderness, as they journeyed towards Canaan, the land of promise. But because of the lack of faith, that generation did not enter into the land. It was in the days of Joshua, That Israel would take the land. And after the conquest, listen carefully to what Joshua had to say. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. This is a reference here to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That is Joshua 21, 43-45. So do you see what's going on here? Moses and that generation, they died in the wilderness. They did not enter into the land of Canaan. But Joshua succeeded Moses and he did lead the people into the promised land. He's a type of Christ by the way. Christ will lead us into the promised land the new heavens and new earth supremely. But Joshua led them in and after he led them in and after the conquest was complete he looked back and he said listen it's all been accomplished. All of the promises that God made to the fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob regarding the land and the descendants in it It's been fulfilled. God has done it. So then in Joshua's day, shortly after the death of Moses, the promises of God made to Abraham regarding a great multitude of descendants occupying Canaan were fulfilled. And we know that after the time of the judges, kings were appointed in Israel and anointed by God. Saul was the first king of Israel, but he was of the people and not of the Lord. David was God's choice, he being a man after God's own heart. And from him many kings did descend. Here I am saying that this was in fulfillment to the promise that God made to Abraham saying, and here is Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And so we need to recognize this, that after the Exodus, the promises made to Abraham regarding many descendants, the land of Canaan and kings were all fulfilled. Two, because Israel broke the terms of the covenant of works that God made with them through Moses, they were eventually expelled from the land. It took some time, of course. But eventually, the northern kingdom fell and the southern kingdom was sent away into Babylonian captivity. I think the dispensationalists fail to recognize points 1 and 2 with regard to Israel's ongoing right to Canaan. And here I'm speaking theologically and not politically. The two things are related, of course. But here I'm merely saying that it is illegitimate, I think, to argue for Israel's present-day right to Canaan from the promises made to Abraham in Genesis. Again, remember what Joshua said not long after the death of Moses regarding the land. He claimed that all of the promises regarding the land had been fulfilled. Uh, The people were given the land. The descendants of Abraham were given the land, just as God said they would be um, in the days Of Abraham, And and furthermore, the covenant that God transacted with Abraham and later Israel through Moses put conditions on the continued enjoyment of the land that was promised to them. We cannot miss this point. God spoke to Abraham saying, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it was possible for people and even many people to be cut off from this covenant that God transacted. With Abraham. There was a conditional element to it. If you were attending Sunday school in the class on covenant theology that I'm offering, you'd understand this fully. Um, but it was possible for this Abrahamic covenant to be broken and, and people could be cut off, and to Israel, God said, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out and you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land of Canaan and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So there was this threat imposed upon Israel saying, obey me. Do not live as the nations live, lest you be vomited out of of the land. So so you can see that the the covenant that God made with Abraham and later Israel made the continual possession of Canaan conditional. Do you see that in the scriptures? It was possible for members of this covenant to be cut off through disobedience and it was possible for the nation as a whole to be vomited out of the land should they be given over to idolatry there is a conditional element here remaining in the land was conditioned upon obedience and this is why God was not unfaithful when he cast the northern kingdom of Israel away never to return and later he sent the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylonian captivity for a time it was not God who was unfaithful it was the people who were unfaithful and they brought upon themselves the, the curses of the covenant which they, which they broke But you will reply, perhaps, by saying, But didn't God promise Abraham that he would have Canaan as an everlasting inheritance? And the answer is, yes, he did. Listen carefully to those words. God spoke to Abraham, saying, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And so all who have the God of Abraham as their God by faith do have the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. What did Abraham think when God spoke these words to him? How did he interpret them? You know, there he is and God says to him, you and your offspring, um, you will be my people, I will be your God, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. You'll have Canaan as an everlasting possession. How did Abraham interpret uh, those, those promises. You say, well, I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't climb into Abraham's head uh, to, to see what it was that he thought. And In fact, the scriptures reveal it. Hebrews speaks to this. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abraham, as he received these promises, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When he thought about having Canaan as an everlasting inheritance. He wasn't thinking of Canaan in an earthly and temporal sense. He was thinking of the new heavens and new earth. And a little bit later, Hebrews makes this even more clear when we read that Abraham and others were looking forward to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city." The scriptures bring clarity to this issue for us. That when God promised that Abraham would have Canaan as an everlasting possession, Abraham took that to mean that through him and through his descendants, salvation would come so much that a new heavens, a new earth would be ushered in. His hope was in the consummated city of God, brothers and sisters. So the point is this, the simple point. After the exodus... God kept His unconditional promises regarding the land when He brought Israel into Canaan in the days of Joshua. Israel's continued enjoyment of the land was conditioned upon their obedience. They were disobedient and so God was not wrong to expel them from the land but He brought them back in from Babylonian captivity after 70 years for the promised Messiah had not yet come. The promised Messiah had not yet come. Three, it was during Babylonian captivity that expectations of a future and greater exodus grew even more pronounced. So there were already expectations, brothers and sisters, concerning something greater yet to come. In fact, in in, in the law, Moses himself says that God will raise up a, a prophet amongst us, listen to him. So even Moses himself indicated that one greater than him would eventually arise from amongst the Hebrew people that was to be listened to. So these these expectations concerning some greater act of redemption, yet in the future, were always there. You can find it throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. It's everywhere in the Psalms. We saw it in our brief study uh, through the Psalms. And it's everywhere in the prophets. You can read, you could read uh, throughout the Prophets. In Isaiah in particular, we we find these themes, uh, these these Exodus themes being applied to future hopes, you see. But I think it was during Babylonian captivity that these expectations really grew. Why would that be? It's kind of obvious why that would be. Um, Here, the nation of Israel had its ups and downs, lots of downs, in fact. But when the people were carried away from Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, there the people are simply despondent. You know, there they are probably thinking, has God... Is He done with us? Has He failed to keep His promises? Are we finished? But the prophets began to minister to the people in Babylonian captivity saying, no, no, no. God is not finished with us. We have been unfaithful but, but there are still promises concerning the Messiah and the blessing of the nations that must be fulfilled. And so they began to minister to the people of Israel saying, something greater is coming. These promises are especially prominent in Jeremiah and Ezekiel they they use exodus language exodus themes to point forward to future hopes Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31 and following is probably the most famous of such texts and i want you to listen to it knowing that Jeremiah ministered during the captivity and he spoke words of hope to exiled the Exodus themes, the Exodus language. God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage and entered into covenant. And the message here is that God is going to accomplish something more and greater in the future and establish a new covenant with His people. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts so we are to remember not only Egyptian Deliverance, but also the episode where Israel met God on Sinai and the law was given, written on what? Tablets of stone. So something new and better is coming, a greater act of deliverance, a new covenant, and not a, a new law in the sense of a different law, but a law, this moral law, written on the hearts of God's people, not on stone only. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Now, I do wish you were all present in Sunday school this morning because we dealt with this text in some detail. But a contrast is being made between the old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant that was coming. Deliverance. Law. After the redemption, you see law written on the heart, but you you see that the trouble in Old Covenant Israel was this the law was given to the people externally, and so many of them were unregenerate. And so there was just constant rebellion, constant sin amongst the covenant people of God. But Jeremiah is announcing to, to to the people of God in exile God is not done with us, He's going to do something greater. A new covenant is going to be established. And in this new covenant, the law is going to be given to us, not externally, but inwardly and on the heart. And all who are a part of this covenant truly are going to be of the Lord. They're going to know the Lord sincerely. So there's a difference. And so you can see that during Babylonian captivity, there was this, I think, heightened expectation of a greater Exodus event and a greater covenant established with that in The future, first covenant that Jeremiah referred to was the one that God transacted with Israel when He redeemed them from Egypt. But the prophet said that a new and better covenant would come. How would God establish this new covenant? It would be through the Messiah and the work of redemption that He would accomplish. And the rest of the book of Jeremiah makes this clear. That this, this new covenant that He spoke of would be established through the work of redemption that the Messiah Himself would accomplish fourthly after the exodus and in, ful- in the fullness of time the messiah did emerge from israel and did in fact accomplish our redemption once again colossians 1:13 you could tell i love this text because it is using exodus language but but it's heightened god has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Exodus themes permeate the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and also the book of Acts. When you read the Gospels, in particular Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when you read the book of Acts, look for Exodus themes, look for Exodus language. The ministry of Jesus Christ is often described using Exodus language and themes. The New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly want us to make this connection between the first Exodus and the second. They want us to see that the first Exodus was an earthly picture of the spiritual and eternal Exodus accomplished by Christ, who is the one greater than Moses. At the beginning of this sermon, I read from Hosea 11 and Matthew 2. The connection between those texts has always fascinated me. In Hosea 11:1, the prophet seems to speak of the first Exodus when he says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." When you read those words from Hosea 11:1, these are the words of the Lord When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What do you think of? You look backwards, don't you, in time from Hosea to the Exodus event itself. But Matthew quotes that passage, that very same passage, saying that it was fulfilled when Jesus was brought out of Egypt by his parents after being sheltered there for a time. He says this happened, this whole event of Uh, Jesus being taken down to Egypt to flee from Herod, preserved there for a time, and after receiving word from God, returning from Egypt to Israel. Matthew says, This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and now he quotes Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Doesn't that fascinate you? Isn't that marvelous? I think some might look at that and say, I don't know, Matthew. It's kind of a stretch, you know. You're kind of, you're digging back into the prophets and you're taking this text that clearly was referring to the first exodus and you're yanking it out of its context and you're saying it's really about Jesus. Uh, Of course, that is not our view. Um, We do see these as inspired words. And we do see that, yes, the people of Israel were preserved for a time in Egypt. They grew into a great multitude there. And from there they were brought out by the mighty hand of God. But even more significantly, the Messiah himself was preserved through them. He was sheltered like a seed in a husk within Israel. The Christ was carried along in the womb of Israel. So when Israel was brought out of Egypt in the days of Moses, it was in fact the Christ who was brought out. Can you picture this? Yes, millions left Egypt. But what did those millions bring with them, you know, invisible? They brought the Messiah with them. They carried along with them the seed of the Messiah. Can you picture it? It was from them that the Messiah would emerge. And so they brought out the Messiah with them. They brought out the precious and very great promises of God that were entrusted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with them. You, you, you should be thinking that sounds like the way that Paul speaks. It is! It is! They carried these precious and very great promises with them out of Egypt. And and listen to this. When the Christ did finally emerge in the womb of Israel, from the womb of Israel, his life followed the same path as Israel's path. And of Moses' path too, Jesus Christ went down into Egypt for a time. Literally, he did, as an infant. There, he was Preserved from the threat of Herod. And from there, he was let out, let out into Israel, into the land of Canaan. And so this is how Matthew could pick up that passage from Hosea 11.1 1, and truly say, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. There, there was one level of fulfillment to this. There, there was one level of meaning to this, the original Exodus. But embedded within the prophecy here, there's a whole other level of meaning, you see. That the Messiah was preserved within Old Covenant Israel as they came out of Egypt and they were led to the Promised Land. And also Christ Himself went down into Egypt, was preserved there, grew up a bit, and was brought out into Israel in order to accomplish His work, the work of our redemption. And so I know this Matthew 2 passage is relatively obscure when compared to other passages which contain Exodus themes in the New Testament. For example, do you remember that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain there? Mountain. He went up to the mountain. There He is transfigured. And who was with Him? Moses and Elijah. Or do you remember that Jesus referred to Himself as manna from heaven? When did When was manna given? That's that's Exodus language, right? Or John's insistence that the rock from which Israel drank in the wilderness was Christ. The rock is Christ, uh, uh, John tells us. So there are Exodus themes everywhere, but here is the point Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God, He is the one who is greater than Moses. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into His kingdom. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we must see this clearly. This is is what the Scriptures teach, Old Testament and New. This is certainly the Christian gospel, brothers and sisters. We must interpret the Scriptures as Christians who have Christ, Jesus, as Lord. Fifthly and lastly, from the resurrection of Christ from the dead on to this present day, The people of God await the consummation of all things, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of glory. This is what we're waiting for. This is the great hope of the new covenant people of God. Peter says this, the Apostle Peter. He says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What are you waiting for, brothers and sisters? What are you looking forward to? A return to Canaan? A return to temple worship? I hope not. What's left to be done except the consummation of all things, the ushering in of a new heavens and new earth? And I say to you that any theological system which urges its followers to hope for something other than the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, is a bit out of step with the teaching of Scripture. We are not waiting for a future and earthly millennium. We are not to long for a return to Old Covenant Israel, to Canaan, or to the temple which was constructed there. Those things were shadows. The substance has come, and the substance is Christ. He has rescued us, not from Egypt, to bring us to Canaan, No, He has delivered us from Satan's kingdom to bring us into His heavenly kingdom, into the new heavens and new earth. And so let us not forget that, brothers and sisters. So these are some of the things that have happened after the Exodus. We we must consider what happened before, what happened during, but what happened after, so that we might notice the flow and the progress in the history of redemption. We must be careful to understand all of these things clearly. I, I have one suggestion for application for you this morning. I do hope that you would learn to think of the redemption that is yours in Christ Jesus as spiritual and heavenly and eternal. Yes, the benefits that are yours in Christ will certainly impact your life on, the, on this earth, And yes, God is concerned with your earthly needs, but Jesus died to set you free from bondage to sin, Satan, and death. He died and rose again to deliver you from the kingdom of darkness and to transfer you into His kingdom of light. And that act of deliverance is so much greater, so much more magnificent than the act of deliverance that God accomplished for the nation of Israel in the days of Moses. Do you see it? It's so much greater If you are in Christ, therefore, you have been set free from bondage to sin. Consider that. Yes, we all struggle with sin, but you are no longer bound in sin. You no longer are in bondage to sin. You have been set free. That should have massive implications for the way that you live your life here on this earth, brothers and sisters. Flee from sin and pursue righteousness in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you you now have a different king. Satan is no longer your master. Christ is your Lord and your King. If you are in Christ, you now live for a different purpose. You are not to be engaged with the building up of Satan's kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, but you are to be engaged with the building up and furtherance of the kingdom of God. You are to live for His glory. If you are in Christ, your hope is not to be set in the things of this world, but in the world to come. The church is the assembly of those who have been redeemed. As Peter says, and we will close with these words from him in 1 Peter 2, nine. But you, speaking to the church, the Christian church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles together, uh, grafted in Gentiles, grafted in to, to Israel, and, and now one, but you, he says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out. Is that not uh, Exodus language there? Who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, Peter says, as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we give you thanks for the Messiah that you have brought into this world. Uh, through the Hebrew people and through the nation of Israel. We thank you for how marvelous your plan of redemption is. It, it's it's marvelous to behold. We thank you that it has been accomplished and that you have rescued us from such a, a powerful enemy. Oh God, you are greater than him. You are sovereign over all and you have worked a great act of deliverance for us. We are thankful. But, O Lord, we do pray that you would move us to worship you and to serve you. For you have redeemed us, not so that we might live for our own passions and pleasures. You've redeemed us so that we might be yours. You've adopted us as your children. You've called us to live for the furtherance of your kingdom and for your glory. And so help us to do that very thing, O Lord. Help us to live for you, God, and to honor you in this world as your redeemed people, your beloved bride the church of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.